I'm really excited because this is the first Sunday of Epiphany. And as you heard in the scripture readings, this is the part of the Jesus story that we are living into as a church and living into as the global church of when Jesus Christ is revealed to the nations, to all peoples, all language groups, all ethnic groups. And we saw that in the story of the Magi coming from the east. And we saw that in the vision of John of Patmos of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And as a multi-ethnic church, it's kind of like we celebrate Epiphany every Sunday. This is it. This is the dream. This is what, what Epiphany is all about. Root's intentionality around multi-ethnicity and diversity was actually what attracted first uh, Oshida and me and our family uh, to this church. And honestly, it's a non-negotiable for us. It's something that we, we look for in a church. Uh, it's something that's been a part of our experience of Christianity since we became Christians, and especially since we've been a couple and since we've been in ministry together, it's always been a part of our experience of the church. But there is another reality that we have to be honest about. In the world today, as the world has gotten smaller due to globalization and due to the advance, advances in technology like video and the internet, there is a value that's grown up, a progressive value, of diversity for diversity's sake. I call this the model UN effect. Look at these guys. Yep. It's like, we want to be the model UN. That's, the, that's this kind of attitude. It's a, it's a self-congratulatory kind of attitude. And sometimes it's used to assuage, honestly, white guilt. Sometimes it's used to appear more tolerant, more progressive. And the dirty little secret that a lot of white people won't admit is that diversity is cool. Multi-ethnic is a bit of a buzzword. In fact, I've seen churches call themselves multi-ethnic and they clearly are not multi-ethnic. Yeah, I applied at a few. Multi-ethnic ministry has gotten glamorized, popularized. But some churches that talk about being multi-ethnic, they have not counted the cost. Can I get an amen? That was a good place for an amen. <laughs> you want to know the truth? The truth is, multi-ethnic community is really challenging at times. Sometimes it's infuriating. Sometimes it's heartbreaking. Multi-ethnic churches have to think about a thousand things that homogenous churches may not even know exist. Multi-ethnic churches have to think about the dynamics of shame versus guilt cultures. Multi-ethnic churches have to think about the incorporation of different languages in singing. That's hard. Multi-ethnic churches have to think about different cultural expectations about things like time and marriage, parenting, stewardship, and the list goes on and on. Multi-ethnic churches often have to take a closer look at how economics, public policy, education, systems in our city affect our congregation. And that's why some churches don't bother. They just don't bother. They have an attitude like this. Why put that kind of pressure on ourselves? And so they might say things like, oh, we're open to everybody, but it's like we're open to everybody as long as you want to become like us. Well, so it's kind of like this, uh, something that Dr. Twist said. Dr. Richard Twist was a Lakota Native American theologian who passed away a few years ago. It's like something he said. 
when he was a young Christian, a new Christian, he asked a, a pastor how he should navigate his native identity and his Christian identity. And this white pastor said to him, don't worry about things like that, Richard. Just be like us. Well, that's not right. And even though the church in America has made many strides in this department, 50 years after Dr. King said it, the 10 o'clock hour on Sunday morning is still, today, the most segregated time of the week. Isn't that incredible? 50 years later. So multi-ethnic church is challenging, sometimes infuriating, sometimes heartbreaking. So why pursue it? Why place, place that pressure on ourselves? Well, firstly, I would say this. Just because something is challenging and sometimes infuriating and sometimes heartbreaking doesn't mean it isn't worth it. How many of you are married? <laughs> is marriage challenging? Sometimes infuriating? Sometimes heartbreaking? But it's worth it, right? I love multi-ethnic community, and it has enriched my life in ways that I probably can't even fully express. But today I want us to look at a few passages from the New Testament, mostly from the letter written by Paul to the church at Ephesus, book of Ephesians, that reveal this, that this one new humanity, this multi-ethnic community, is not our dream, it's God's dream. It's God's dream for a society that's different from the broader society, a society of shalom. And it's God's program for developing you and me into people who love like Jesus loved. And it's God's kingdom revolution against the powers of racism and ethnocentrism. So before we jump into the text, would you join me in a prayer? I'm going to pray for us. Uh, a prayer written by Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil, who's a magnificent minister, uh, African-American covenant pastor in Seattle. And she wrote a book called The Heart of Racial Justice. And I want to read this prayer. I want to pray this prayer for us this morning. Would you join me? God, thank you that you made all of us in your image to fill the earth and to bring all things under your reign. Thank you that you have called us to be culture creators and have given us our ethnic backgrounds as a gift. We confess that we have misused this gift and rebelled against you through our ethnocentrism and our pride. We ask your forgiveness for our part by ignorance, silence, or even active participation in excluding or judging other people. Thank you that you have given all peoples as beings made in your image, the capacity to participate in your kingdom. Praise you, Lord, that our ethnic identities are part of your good purpose and plan for our lives and for the world. We look forward to the day when people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will worship together with all that they have and all that they are in the kingdom of God. And all God's people said, amen. So today, I've noticed a phenomenon in the, the Western world. People act as if multi-ethnic diversity is something that liberal democracies invented. You ever notice that? It's like, look at how great we are. We're so progressive. We're so diverse. But 
the reality is multi-ethnic community has been God's dream for the restoration of shalom in the world since the very beginning of his salvation mission. Take a look at this. In Genesis, way back in Genesis, very beginning, God chooses a man named Abraham, a Chaldean nomad, to be the one through whom God is going to launch God's salvation rescue plan to restore the shalom of the world. And God calls this man outside and tells him, look up at the stars and try to count them. You can't, can you? To this man who had fathered no children, God said, I'm going to make your offspring outnumber the stars. God tells him, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. And then through you, I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth. The covenant that God cut with Abraham the launch of God's redemptive restoration plan for the world was a multi-ethnic vision from the start. And did you know this? I bet you didn't know this. Did you know that even the people who were delivered from slavery in Egypt in the Exodus were a multi-ethnic community? Did you know that? Take a look at this. After the 10th plague in the Exodus story, when Pharaoh has had enough, and he says to Moses and Aaron, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go worship the Lord as you requested, take your flocks and herds, and go. Four verses later, it says this. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth, where there were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. And then it says this, check this out. Many other people went up with them as well as the livestock, the flocks, and herds. Now, how do I know that these many other people weren't Israelites, besides the fact that they weren't counted among the number of Israelites? Here's how I know. The rest of the chapter is all stipulations on how non-Israelites could participate in the Passover meal. Look what it says. Verse 48. If an immigrant who lives with you wants to observe the Passover to the Lord, then he and all his males should be circumcised. Then they may join in observing it, and he should be regarded as a native of the land. So over and over, throughout the biblical narrative, throughout the Bible, empires rise up, and they conquer the peoples, and they divide the peoples, and they oppress the peoples. But God's vision has remained the same, to create and to form a people, a multi-ethnic community, a society of shalom. That's been God's dream from the beginning. And multi-ethnicity is inextricably linked to shalom justice because of principalities and powers like racism. Racism is a principality and a power because it is a structural injustice based on differences between people in ethnicity or race. Racism is the disadvantaging of racial or ethnic minorities in a society, denial of access to resources, and sometimes specific targeting, exploitation, and marginalization. But God's dream of a multi-ethnic community necessarily entails righting those wrongs. It necessarily entails peace, harmony, right relationships between people, what the Bible calls shalom. So this society of shalom for all different types of people, isn't something that liberal democracies dreamed up. 
It's something that God dreamed up. It's God's dream. The ideas of social justice and human rights come from the divine revelation given to the nation of Israel. They don't come from liberal democracies. Human rights didn't exist. Did you know in ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Egypt, ancient Babylon, all these other ancient Near Eastern cultures, they didn't have human rights. The king was considered the image of God. And everybody else was basically expendable unless you were useful to the king. And along comes the divine revelation to the Hebrew people, which says every human being is made in the image of God. Every human being has inherent worth because they're made in the image of God. This was a radical idea that totally changed the landscape of people's rights. And this divine revelation didn't stop there. It went on to say, in a community, we have a responsibility to one another, especially to the most vulnerable members of our community. So all throughout the Hebrew Bible, what is God telling Israel? The widows, the orphans, the foreigners among you, do justice by them. Make sure they are taken care of. That's the message. You know, when I was in, uh, in Boston, I had a short period of time uh, when I worked at a nonprofit. And this nonprofit did amazing justice work in, uh, in an under resourced neighborhood of Boston. But it was, a, it was a secular nonprofit. Most of the staff were people of faith, but the executive director was a very vocal ex Catholic atheist. And I remember on my last day, when I was, I was leaving the, the organization, we had lunch together. And he did his normal teasing and taunting about faith and religion. And I said, that's nice. I said, but, um, you know, you're all into social justice. I said, can you name me one social justice movement in America that wasn't started and sustained by people of faith? And he was like, whoa, there's a, well, then, and, uh, yeah, mm, yeah, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. I was like, that's right, suffrage, abolition, civil rights, name one, pick one, anyone. Guess who they were started by and sustained by? People of faith. This brings us to our first passage. We're going to look in Paul's first century letter to the Jesus disciples in a Roman city called Ephesus. In this letter, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is going to reveal God's dream for the world from a jail cell where he was imprisoned for preaching the good news that Jesus is the king of all the nations, not Caesar. So we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. You can turn in your translation of the Bible if you want, or it'll be up on the screen behind me. Ephesians 3, starting in verse 2. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has been known, as it has been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery, check this out, this mystery is that through the gospel, Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? Verse 7, 
I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace to me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. Check this out, verse 10. His intent, God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In him... And through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, to not be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. Now watch this last verse. For this reason, all what I just said, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So the great mystery that Paul reveals in this letter hidden in God from previous generations, but revealed now by divine revelation, by God's Spirit to the apostles and prophets, is that through the gospel, Jesus the Messiah is the Lord of all the nations. Every ethnic group on earth. Gentiles are now co-heirs together with Israel, members of one body. God's dream is coming true. This multi-ethnic vision of a society of shalom is coming true in Christ. In Jesus is created this beautiful expression of God's love that puts on display God's power to the principalities and the powers. But this raises a very important question in my mind. It's like, okay, I get that. My question is, how? How does this happen? What's the mechanism? How do we come together from all different backgrounds? How do we come together from all different cultures? This isn't normal. This isn't the usual thing that happened in the first century. In the first century, Jews thought that Gentiles were unclean idolaters who were violent oppressors and who were given over to every form of debauchery. That's what Jews thought of Gentiles. And you know what Gentiles thought of Jews? Gentiles thought that Jews were superstitious, all these weird rituals, self-righteous, and weak because we conquered them. So there was actual hatred between these groups. And God is going to bring them together. How? How is God going to bring them together? Well, that, for that, we have to go back to chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture, starting in verse 11. Remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. That's how. Verse 14. For he, Christ himself, is our peace. He's our shalom. Who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. 
By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to, get, put to death their hostility. He came preaching peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For in him, for through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. That's a powerful passage of Scripture. I think one of the most powerful, practical, relevant passage of Scripture in, in all of the Bible. At this time, when Paul is writing this letter, if one of these Greek-speaking Gentiles in the church at Ephesus were to travel to Jerusalem and try to walk into the Jerusalem temple, like, hey, we worship the same Messiah, let's, let's go. On the wall, separating the Gentile court from the inner court, was a big sign that said, no Gentiles. Past this point, and your death is on your own head. You will be killed. That's the dividing wall of hostility. And there's many dividing walls of hostility in our world today, right? We have our own walls. We have our own signs and boundaries. But through the crucified body of Christ, God has reconciled not only you and me to God, but has reconciled you and me to one another. We form one body. We are reconciled. How did he do this? Jesus read his Bible differently than the folks around him. He read the Hebrew scriptures differently than the Pharisees. He read the Hebrew scriptures through a lens of love. And sometimes that meant setting aside the letter of the law for the spirit of the law. Jesus would set aside the, where the law of Moses excluded people based on gender or based on ethnicity or based on age. He would set it aside. And he would include people who were formerly excluded from the synagogue because they were sinners, like tax collectors. Tax collectors were formerly dismissed from the synagogue. You collect taxes, you can't come worship here. Jesus said, Nick, uh, Zacchaeus, I'm having dinner at your house tonight. Or the woman with the issue of blood was formerly excluded from society. You are ritually unclean. You cannot be here. Jesus said, you're a daughter of Abraham too. Jesus set aside the law using a, a hermeneutic, that's an interpretive lens of love. And Jesus created a community of misfits, a community of people that didn't fit in their respective cultures or their respective groups. This community of misfits was discovering their true identities in Jesus. They were becoming more like who they were always intended to be. They were learning how to love like God loves through Jesus. So now that Jesus has come, embodying God's dream, creating a community of misfits united in him, that doesn't necessarily explain the why, though. Why is God doing this? The first reason that God is doing this is found in chapter 4. Let me take a drink of water.
turn to chapter 4 if you have a translation of the Bible or an app. All right, chapter 4, verse 1. Remember Paul's in prison. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live life, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Here's how you do that. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of love. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. Verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Verse 14. Then we will no longer be like infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of people with their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So did you notice that the people that are described in this passage, described as prophets, evangelists, uh, pastors, teachers, those are gifts to the church given by God. And you know what? That's not just, regardless of what you've been taught, that's not just professional clergy. Amen? How many of you believe in the priesthood of all believers? Right? So these pastors, teachers, evangelists, prophets, that's not just me up here. That's you. <laughs> That's us. We are gifts given to the body of Christ. Why? Why are we given? To equip one another, to build up one another so that we can serve. Not serve ourselves, but serve one another. So why does God create this multi-ethnic community? The first reason is to make us more like Jesus so that we learn to love like Jesus loved, so that we mature and grow in our faith, and grow in our capacity to love people that are different from us. When I was meditating on this point this week, I, I was trying to come up with a memorable analogy. I was like, how do I really drive this point home? And then I thought about something uh, that's at Juice and Ginger's house. Juice and Ginger have this device. It's, it's in their kitchen. And Juice's coworker at work is over the moon for this thing, right? He's just like, talks about it all the time. It's a combination of a pressure cooker and a crock pot. It's called an instant pot. Okay? So the, the, don't ask me how this thing works. It's like magic to me, okay? So things that would normally take like hours to cook, cook in minutes. It's not a microwave. It's an Instapot, okay? All I can say, I, I don't know how it works, but all I can say is it turns up the heat and it applies the pressure. That's how it cooks. I don't know. So why does God create multi-ethnic community? Because multi-ethnic community is the instapot of spiritual growth. You'll never forget that analogy. 
Loving people that are like us is a lot different than loving people that are a lot, lot easier than loving people that are different from us. You know why that is? Because I'm used to giving myself the benefit of the doubt. I have all kinds of justifications for why I am the way I am, right? I can explain to you why I think the way I think, but when other people think differently than me, I have no clue why they think that way. I'm a cat person. I'm not a dog person. I have learned that from having a cat and a dog. I love the cat and I hate the dog. So I'm a cat person. I don't understand dog people. My wife's a dog person. I don't understand it. I'm like, how do you love these animals that are entirely obnoxious, constantly needy? You have to walk them? You have to take them outside? Like, the cat just goes. I'm like, I don't even know when he goes. I don't care. Right? It's awesome. He's not needy. Anyways, that's one of those examples of how I give myself all kinds of excuses for why I think the way I think. But when other people think differently, I'm like, what's wrong with you? Why do you think like that? Multi-ethnic community has worked on me over the decades, has formed me. And now, giving people that are different from me and think differently from me the benefit of the doubt comes more naturally to me. It's more like second nature to me. In fact, I would say that now, my, my inclination is to trust people that are different than me more than trust people that are like me, honestly. If you're like me, I, I, I know your schemes. Multi-ethnic community teaches us to confront our prejudices and our fears because people are not stereotypes. Have you ever noticed that? You have a stereotype in your mind, and then you meet the real person, and you're like, oh, you're nothing like this stereotype. Multi-ethnic community teaches us to confront our selfishness because things will not always be the way we like them. And that's good. Helps us mature. Multi-ethnic com community finally, ultimately, teaches us to trust God because loving people that are different from us can't be done in our own strength. We need the power of the Holy Spirit within us to love people like Jesus loves them. So, this one new humanity, this multi-ethnic community, society of shalom, is also God's program for developing us into people who love like Jesus. Remember, it's God's dream, and it's God's program. But that's not the only reason why. Ephesians also tells us a second reason why God has created this multi-ethnic society of shalom. And the second reason is that God is up to something cosmic with this thing, something eternal with this thing, something absolutely revolutionary, never before seen on earth. Chapter 6, Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 12. Paul sums up his letter with this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the cosmic realms. So to close out this letter to the Ephesians, Paul places the entire thing in the context of a cosmic battle that has real-world implications for our lives. 
Paul says that this one new humanity, this multi-ethnic society of shalom that God has created in Christ is under attack from the devil. That's what he says. Paul says that there is an unseen spiritual dimension where powers are at work to destroy it. And honestly, I'm being honest here, I've seen this happen. I've totally seen this happen. When a diverse community of misfits starts to come together and find their identity in Jesus, all, all types of stuff just starts happening. Pow, 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 like popcorn. And it's like, wow, where did all this come from? The schemes of the devil. Fallen powers of this world get really upset when God starts showing off his wisdom and his power. The powers of this world that have erected walls of hostility, see them get torn down, they want to build them back up. When you and I start to love people who the broader society says are not worthy of love, the principalities and powers will try to shame us into conformity. You can't do that. They, they tried to do this to Jesus, remember? He started loving people that his society said were unlovable or not worthy of love, and they said, you can't do that. And then when that didn't work, the principalities, when they can't control us through shame, they'll try to control us through coercion. And that's what they did to Jesus. If we can't shame you into conformity, we'll just kill you. They crucified Jesus because he loved like God loves. And, if, and Jesus said this. He said, if you want to be my disciple, you have to be willing to take up your cross and follow me. Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil wrote an excellent book on racial justice. And it talks about the spiritual battle that we're involved in when we form a multi, an intentionally multi-ethnic community. I think it's the best book of its kind. And um, here's what she writes. As we experience forgiveness and the possibility of a new future together, we will realize that there have been larger, destructive forces at work in our common life. The Bible calls these larger forces principalities and powers and gives us clear direction on how we are to relate to them. We are to relate to them as free people who worship God and not these idols. We are not to be controlled. Rather, we are to be discerning and free. We are to renounce the influence and the control of these forces in our lives. How do these forces influence us? She, she explains. Biblically, the powers, human, institutional, demonic rulers, propagate social myths. Racism, race, is a social myth. They propagate social myths that have immense power and influence in our lives. For example, the myth of mammon. Here's what the myth of mammon is. That through that we can achieve true security from all danger and true control of our world through the accumulation of wealth. This is a false and deceptive and ultimately destructive myth. We need to understand this myth upheld by the human, demonic, and institutional rulers of our society. It must be exposed, it must be rejected, and it must be renounced. She says, the legitimacy of these powers to rule has been canceled at the cross. And their true nature as enemies of God has been exposed. But they carry on through people 
human people and human ideologies and human institutions that are willing to live the lies that they propagate. How many of you know this is true? You've seen it in your, in your own world. You've seen the lies propagated through institutions and ideologies. So how do we fight them? How do we battle against them? Here's what she says. This battle is personal and institutional, but more than that, it's a spiritual battle. Our weapons are not the weapons of this world. As Christians, we must use spiritual weapons that have divine power to demolish strongholds of racism, hatred, oppression, injustice, and fear. This one new humanity, this multi-ethnic society of shalom created in Christ is a revolt, a revolution against the divisive and hateful ways of the principalities and powers. When we come together, we are making a stand. We stand as witnesses to the power of God's self-giving love demonstrated in Jesus' cross. When we come together, we stand as living witnesses that love is more powerful than hate and unity is more powerful than division. Every time you and I press into multi-ethnic community, overcoming our prejudices and fears, overcoming our selfishness, we refuse to bow down to the powers of ethnocentrism and racism. Every time we press into multi-ethnic community and overcome our prejudices, fears, and selfishness, we expose those powers. We expose them as a lie and as evil. Every time we press into multi-ethnic community, overcoming our prejudices and fears and selfishness, we wage war on the powers by demonstrating that they have been defeated at the cross. Greg Boyd is a pastor here in St. Paul, and he wrote a book uh, called Myth of a Christian Religion, and he talks about this spiritual warfare. Here's what he says. It's brief. He says, Cross-ethnic relationships are by their very nature revolting against the powers that have installed and aggravated mistrust between different ethnic groups for centuries. Racial reconciliation is spiritual warfare. So we must not naively think forging such relationships is going to be easy, but they are always worth it. Sisters and brothers, Roots Covenant Church is part of God's dream for a multi-ethnic society of shalom and Roots Covenant Church is part of God's program for developing you and me into people who love like Jesus loved. And Roots Covenant Church is part of God's kingdom revolution against the powers of ethnocentrism and racism. Now, up until this point, you might have all been saying, amen, amen, amen. But what about application? What do I do now? Well, Unlike some messages, the application of this message is not a one-and-done type of thing. I'm not going to give you three steps to racial unity. That's not going to work. This is a lifelong endeavor that we are pressing into, we're striving for. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, we will arrive, but we won't arrive today or tomorrow or, or next week. But I do have three really concrete, practical things that you could do uh, this week. Number one, RSVP to the One Church, Many Tribes two-part retreat coming up this weekend and in uh, February 3rd. Because this is how we practically come together and live into God's dream, participate in God's program, and revolt against the powers. If you come to this retreat, we're going to learn more about one another, 
about the gifts that God has given this congregation. And we're going to learn more about how we can use those gifts, work together to fulfill the kingdom and to equip the body. There's going to be more information about that in the announcements, and you can sign up uh, on the website. Secondly, next Sunday on the 14th, we will not be gathering here at CLS. We'll be gathering at First Covenant Church for a celebration of the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We're going to join with several other congregations. We're going to join with a predominantly Hmong congregation that's Baptist. We're going to uh, join with a Spanish-speaking vineyard congregation, and I think three or four other congregations. It's going to be beautiful and magnificent. And you can still sing in the choir. Everybody's going to sing together every praise, and there's a rehearsal on the 11th that you can attend, and you, and you can be part of that. There's also a few more uh, volunteer opportunities. Trinity, who's not in the room, Trinity and Callie are going to serve water during the potluck afterwards. There's going to be a potluck afterwards. Imagine how amazing that the potluck is going to be, okay? So you can come to that next week. And then finally, I want to encourage you to be a part of, um, oh, this is the most important application. The most important application of this message is right here at this table. When Jesus broke bread with his disciples at the Last Supper, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Every time you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That means that this table is a future anticipation breaking into the now, breaking into the present. One day, every tribe and every tongue and every nation will worship the Lamb together. And that reality is breaking into the, is breaking into the present right now. And it breaks into the present through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. This is how we come together as one, as one body. This is how Paul put it. Paul made this very point about the table. He said, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. For we partake of the one loaf. So if you've been reconciled to God, or you want to be reconciled to God, this table is for you. If you've been reconciled to your sisters and brothers, or you want to be reconciled to your sisters and brothers, this table is for you. I'm going to ask that, um, I'm going to ask that Oshida serve with me. Um, I don't have a second bowl, though. So how are we going to do this? Okay, so I'm going to ask that we make a line, and this is what we're going to do. You're going to take the bread and receive a blessing, and then you're going to dip it into the cup, and you're going to partake right here. But then, here, here's what I want to do. I want to do something special. I don't know if Roots has ever done this before, but I want us to create a circle around the perimeter so we can look at one another and see this one body that we form through this table. So uh, when you're ready, uh, you can prayerfully come. And I'm going to ask... Ming, could you come and play softly? I'm going to ask that. Uh, yep. So prayerfully come when you're, when you're ready.